Today on Know the Truth, a lesson from Philip de Corsi. Paul imagines himself crossing the finishing line of life. Remember, he's holding nothing back. He's not walking across, he's running across. Running from the world and sin and the devil and failure. Running towards Christ, the author and finisher of his faith. What a great picture. I have finished the race assigned to me. Welcome to Know the Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd. When running a race, it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And today, Philip DeCourse reminds us that life is the same way. Your finish matters more than your start. It's the second part of a message titled Finishing Well from the Without Apology series on living the Christian life with courage. If you'd like to revisit this series, you can listen anytime at ktt.org or on the KTT app or podcast. Now, here's Pastor Philip with today's lesson. We're turning here to Paul's last letter. It's AD 67. This is Paul's swan song. He's written it about three to four years after his first letter to Timothy. It's personal, it's pastoral, it's passionate. And here in this passage, he's about to hand the baton off to Timothy. So let's come and look at this very tender and passionate and dramatic scene where Paul is addressing his young son in the faith for the last time, and he passes on some words of encouragement. He has finished well, and he wants Timothy to do the same. There are four things, the resolve, the review, the reward, the response. So let's look at the resolve. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. This is Paul's resolve to give the last drop of his life to gospel endeavor. In one sense, Paul's life is about to be taken from him. His head will be severed from his shoulders. He will die soon enough as a martyr. His blood will splatter the ground. The candle of his life will be extinguished. But it's clear from verse 6 in another very real sense Paul is giving his life away. On the one hand, the Romans are taking it from him, but in another hand, Paul is willingly offering it to Christ and to the kingdom, his final witness to a pagan culture. Philippians 1.20, right? Whether by life or by death, that Christ may be magnified in my body. As we think about the resolve here, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. You and I would be reminded, and it's good to be reminded, that death needs to be a crowning moment. You need to plan your death. And where you're conscious and in charge of your faculties, you need to command the scene and give a confession of faith. That's what Paul is doing here. Don't passively embrace death. Make it an act of worship. But here's the second thing. On the one hand, death needs to be a crowning moment. 
On the other hand, life needs to be a constant offering of ourselves to God and others. I want you to notice it's inherent in the text. Paul dies all used up. There's nothing left in the tank. I'm being poured out down to the last drop. That's challenging, isn't it? No, life is not something to be saved. Life is something to be spent. Wasn't it John Wesley, the Methodist leader, who said of those early Methodists, my people die well? Let's move on. You've not only got the resolve, you've got the review. The review, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The shadow of death is already standing by. The shadow of death is already casting itself over Paul's cell. He knows that he's in a season where death could come at any moment. And so what he does, as is often the case when death approaches, he looks back, he reminisces, he revisits the past. There's an old Irish proverb that says, you know what, live each day as if it were your last, because someday it will be. And Paul senses that, and so he reviews his life. And the point of it is to inspire Timothy to fulfill the ministry. So there's three things here. I'm going to picture them as pictures. There's the soldier, there's the sportsman, and there's the steward. Paul casts his life in three pictures. So number one, verse seven, as he reviews his life, he can say, I have fought the good fight, the soldier. Paul depicts the Christian life as a struggle, as a battlefield, as a fight for survival in the face of the world around him, the flesh within him, and the devil nipping at his heels. His spiritual life is on the line each and every day. He's a target for assassination. He's living behind enemy lines, morally speaking. Every day is a moral minefield and one wrong step and he blows his legs from right from out under him and collapses spiritually. Dangerous stuff. That's why actually in chapter two, he'll say what? Verse three, therefore you must endure, Timothy, hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who is enlisted as a soldier. Paul may not have been physically impressive, but he was a spiritual warrior and he had the scars to prove it. The devil had fought against him. The world had pressed in on him. The good that he would do, he didn't do because his flesh was making it difficult to progress in sanctification. Judaizers were among the Galatians, fanaticism among the Thessalonians, immorality and litigation among the Corinthians, and insepid Gnosticism among the Colossians. There was all kinds of fights and all kinds of fronts, morally and theologically, and Paul gets up every day with that attitude. I'm going to have to endure hardship. I'm going to have to be courageous. I'm going to have to do it one more time under fire. And I'm going to have to be single-minded because that's the point, isn't it? No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Men that are called to war leave their businesses behind. They hug their children. They kiss their wives. They put on a uniform and they don't look back. They're single-minded. They don't get engaged in other stuff when the war's on. 
And that's the picture. And guys, each of us have battles to fight. You're in battles right now for your moral purity, for the strengthening of your marriage, for the raising of your kids, for making a stand for Christ in the world. Those fights go on all the time. Every time we see each other, we need to realize that brother of mine is in the battle. You can be sure of it. At some front, he's in a fight. And Paul says, I fought the good fight and may God give us grace to be those kind of men. I bought a book recently called Well Versed by Jim Garlow, who's pastor down at Skyline Church in San Diego. And in the book, he tells about a member of his church who's a retired college math professor, an elderly man, a former Marine. And one day talking to his pastor, this man said, you know what, pastor, I was a good Marine but I never got a chance to prove it. And the pastor said, well, what are you talking about? You never got a chance to prove it. He says, well, well, I signed up. I was on the other side of the Korean War and I was before the Vietnam War. Pastor, I was a good Marine, but I never got a chance to prove it because you know what? I was a Marine between wars. And here's what Jim Garlow says in his book, men of God, you are not born between wars. We are alive in a time of tumultuous ideas and concepts. We are in a war, a war for truth, a war for righteousness, a war for justice. And I want to tell every man in this room, young and old, you can every day prove you're a good Marine for Christ by the way you live and step up. So that's the first picture. Here's another one as he reviews his life. We need to be challenged by that. The sportsman, I've run the race. I fought the fight and I've run the race. Back to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have finished the race. We're off the battlefield and onto the athletic field. Paul imagines himself crossing the finishing line of life. I think he imagines himself falling over the line breathlessly. Remember, he's being poured out. He's holding nothing back. He's not walking across, he's running across running from the world and sin and the devil and failure, running towards Christ, the author and finisher of his faith. What a great picture. In fact, again, go back to chapter two, verse five. And again, he picks up the idea of athletics. The Christian man competes in athletics. He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This is one of Paul's common metaphors. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about, I run so as to win. In Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, Char behind and he's pressing forward towards that finish line of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, on the one hand, I think this speaks to staying the course. All right? Kind of the idea of endurance. This was one of Paul's goals, wasn't it? If you go back to Acts 20, when he's addressing the Ephesian elders, write it down, Acts 20, 24, I'll read it for you. He says this to them, speaking of the danger of going up to Jerusalem, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear for myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Paul gets up every day with that in mind. I want to finish the race with joy, so I'm not going to do anything today that will rob me of the joy that will put back the work of God in my life days, months, weeks. And he comes to the end of his life. That's early on. Now we're at the end of his life, and he can say, I have run and finished the race, and I'm doing it with joy. 
I'm already being poured out. So on the one hand, it speaks of completing life's race, steadfastness, endurance. But I think there's something else here more important. On the other hand, it speaks about staying in your lane and running your race as opposed to what God calls others to do. Because I want you to notice that this is in the definite article in the Greek. Notice that it's translated that way in your English Bible. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished, notice, the race. I think most commentators agree with me, or I actually agree with them, that Paul is saying, I have finished the race assigned to me. The race assigned to me. Because athletes run in lanes. If you go back to verse 5 of chapter 2, they keep the rules. And I think Paul's acknowledging that. I have finished the race assigned to me. And that race was given to Paul, wasn't it? In Acts 9, verses 15 to 16, when God says to Ananias, you know what? Go to him. I know you think he's a Trojan horse, but he's not. Go to him. He's a chosen vessel of mine who will speak the gospel to the Gentiles and suffer many things. And you know what? When you read Acts 9, 15 to 16, read the rest of the book of Acts and the epistles, Paul exactly fulfills that. In his letter to the Ephesians, what does he say? You know what? We are Christ's workmanship. And God has works for us to do. In a sense, there's the general will of God we're all committed to. But I think when it comes to each man in this room, God has a place, God has a space for each of us to fill. God has a work for each of us to do. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, when it comes to the enablements of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to serve in areas of mercy, teaching, leadership, whatever, it says that the Spirit gives these gifts as He wills sovereignly. We don't all get the same gift. That's why in that passage, he'll say, do all speak in tongues? Implication, no. Do all prophesy? Implication, no. We've all got a lien to run in. Every part of the body is separate and necessary. You've got a lien to run in. You've got a life God has written down for you to live. That's why Jesus rebukes Peter when he learns that he's going to die crucified. And he looks over at John He says, I'm not liking what I'm hearing about myself. What's his assignment? And what does Jesus say? What's that to you? What's that to you? Run in your lane. There's grace for what I've called you to do. That's why David had to learn that he couldn't fight in Saul's armor. That's why we've got to find out, according to Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, what the will of God is and do it. And we know what the will of God is in general. We've got to come to faith in Christ. We've got to be filled by the Spirit. We've got to be holy and sanctified. We've got to love our wives. We've got to raise our children. We get all of that. That's true of every man in this room. But you have a certain space and place in life. You have certain gifts. You have a certain calling on your life. You've got to discover that. Or you won't be able to say on your deathbed, I ran the race assigned to me. Guys, it's never too late for a mid-course correction to discover what has God still got me to do unique to me, unique to my ability, financially giftedness, time. 
In his book, The Cure for the Common Life, Max Licato tells about flying somewhere to speak and he goes to the baggage claim and he grabs what looks like his suitcase and he looks like his suitcase size, material, color and gets back to the hotel. He opens it up and realizes it's not his. It's the exact looking suitcase, but it's not his suitcase. And in it, he finds perfume, jewelry and women's clothing. And in the book, he talks about that. He was, you know, set to preach, but he didn't fancy preaching in a pleated skirt, a frilly blouse, and a pair of stilettos. When he talks about this, he talks about, guys, you never want to live out of someone else's suitcase. Are you living out of someone else's suitcase? Are you living the life your mom and dad prescribed for you or God? The pressure of society. You're living the American dream, which is often nothing to do with God's kingdom. What life are you living? What suitcase are you living out of? Is it the one God packed for you from eternity past and the works that he's got for you to do? Here's the last picture, the steward, the steward. This third image is that of the trustee or the steward. Look what Paul says, I have kept the faith. Now, I want you to notice, it's my conviction, and I think the majority of biblical commentators, that the fact that Paul talks about keeping the faith, he's not talking about his personal belief in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about his commitment to Jesus Christ. He's talking about the fact that he has kept the faith, the body of truth, the gospel. Remember back in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 to 21, Paul says to Timothy, keep the deposit. The word deposit means the treasure. And in chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 of this very letter, verse 14, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit. What's the good thing? It's the gospel. It's Christology. It's the person and work of Christ. It's his deity, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning substitutionary death, his physical resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, his continuing prayers on our behalf, and his impending return in power and glory. That's the deposit. And Paul has kept it. He's kept it in the face of Judaizers, legalism, antinomianism. He's kept it when pressured by the Romans. He's kept it when mocked by the Jews. In fact, in this very letter, he'll warn Timothy about those who have forsaken him all across Asia. He'll talk about two men who say that the resurrection has already happened. The truth is always under attack. It must be preserved. It must be guarded. And Paul says, as I die, I can say truthfully, I have indeed defended the truth. You want to be able to say that, guys. You want to be able to say, I know the gospel. I can discern false doctrine from sound doctrine. And the day is going to come, it says here in this very letter, that when in the church they will not endure sound doctrine. But you know what? I'm committed to guarding the deposit. I'm going to defend the gospel as we have understood it historically within the church. Uh, a while ago, in fact, 
last year when we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I read a book by Erwin Lutzer, former pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. It was a book called Rescuing the Gospel. And it was a story about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. And when you get to the end of the book, the last page on the book, he talks about the fact that the gospel, just as it had to be rescued from the darkness of Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, so the gospel needs to be rescued in every generation from distortion and apostasy and dilution. Here's what he says. Martin Luther had to rescue the gospel from the distortions of Catholicism. In some sense, our task is more difficult than his. We must rescue the gospel from Catholicism along with a host of other movements, such as fraudulent so-called evangelicals whose entire television program is dedicated to health and wealth theology with special breakthroughs promised to those who send them money. We have to rescue it from theological liberals who deny the supernatural character of the Christian faith. We have to rescue it from false religions that compete for the allegiance of men and women. We must rescue it from the cults who come to our doorsteps. We must rescue it from all who think that it's up to them to contribute to their salvation and that they must make themselves worthy to receive it. We must rescue the world that the gospel of the New Testament is for the spiritually needy who have nothing to offer God they come not to give, but to receive. They come not just to be helped, but to be rescued. Their contribution to salvation is their sin. God's grace supplies everything else. This is our task in every age. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy, and he's saying to the men of Kindred Community Church, rescue the gospel from error. At the Master's Seminary and University board meeting a week ago, we had a wonderful testimony from a young man from South Africa, just one of the many young men that come to our school from all across the world. And as he gave his testimony, he told the story right at the end about his commitment to the gospel. And he said he had just finished a book where he learned that the great reformer, John Calvin, was dying. And around his deathbed were his colleagues in the ministry and some of his colleagues in the school where they taught and trained up the next generation of ministers. You know what Calvin said close to the moment of his death to his pastor friends and professor friends? He said this, change nothing, avoid innovation. Keep the faith. This is our task in every age. Hi, Philip DeCourcy here. Back with you to say thanks for your support of Know the Truth. Each week, we strive to bring you clear and convicting Bible teaching on the radio and on the web. And we're turning up the volume on the gospel each and every day to proclaim the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Through the daily Bible teaching on Know the Truth, I want to encourage you to grow closer to God, equip you to serve Him with excellence, and prepare you for a glorious future in heaven. And that's why we have carefully selected some biblical resources for you that you may grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wayne, will you tell him a bit more? I sure will. Thank you, Philip. If you've been listening for a while now, it's a good indication you have a sincere desire to follow Christ and remain faithful even in the face of opposition. And it's our aim to empower you to do so through messages like the one you heard today and through helpful companion resources hand-selected by Pastor Philip with you in mind. Today, Philip wants to empower you with a book that follows two churches during the coronavirus pandemic and their courageous decisions to reopen despite orders to remain closed. It's titled, God vs. Government, 
Taking a Biblical Stand When Christ and Compliance Collide. And this book provides insight and wisdom on what believers should do when the state violates the church. You'll want to read it for yourself, send it to family, and share with church leaders. We'll send you a copy with a gift of any amount to know the truth. You can call 888-644-8811 with your gift or give online at ktt.org. You can also write to us, address your envelope to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you're new to Know the Truth or have never reached out to us before, we want to welcome you with your own copy of Philip's refreshing daily devotional booklet. It's called Resting in God's Daily Sufficiency, and it's yours when you contact Know the Truth. Just call 888-644-8811 or visit ktt.org. And if you're looking for on-the-go resources, you can download the KTT app for easy listening, reading, and sharing. Just visit the App Store on your mobile device and search for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Well, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again next time for more bold biblical teaching from Philip DeCourcy right here on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.